Something's happening in performance management, and it might be just in time. Amidst the fog of uncertainty that seems to envelop the world today, organizations are beginning to figure out where they stand and, more importantly, where they go from here. When it comes to performance management, they're innovating on how they evaluate and develop talent. When goals set last quarter, let alone last year, seem unreasonable or even irrelevant, the moment demands a more nuanced approach to gauging progress. That's where science comes in. Research suggests that continuous performance management is the answer. We need to be having feedback conversations more frequently, setting shorter term goals, and measuring our progress against our former selves, not a score sheet. Get ready, because this is what the future of performance management looks like, before your very ears. I'm Gabriel Berezin, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the Neuroleadership Institute. This week, we continue to draw from a weekly webinar series that NLI has been hosting every Friday between our co-founder and CEO, Dr. David Rock, and distinguished guests. This week, David's joined by NLI's head of performance, Barbara Steele, and senior client strategist, Rob Olandra Crane. Together, they discuss the science of performance management in a VUCA world. Enjoy. This should be a great session. I'll just warn you up front, you're going to learn a lot from each other. But we wanted to run this session as kind of an opportunity to, to see what's really happening out there. I think you'll find this really helpful to kind of level set what you could do, what you should do, what everyone else is doing, and also anchoring somewhat on the science. Our vision as an organization is to actually make organizations more human through science. We did not write that this year. We wrote that two years ago. And wow, it's been a big year for us. Science is actually making a comeback. What a nice thing. People are respecting science and humans are making a comeback. We actually, companies are trying to value the humans. So We've never been busier. The work we're doing is based on work we've developed for the last 22 years. And we're now advising over 50 of the Fortune 100, which has been really exciting. Just to start with, as we think about performance management, we have to start with how are the humans? So we collected some data, 688 respondents. Uh, the, the cliff note is 49%, which is, let's call it half, noticed more or somewhat more difficulties focus on everyday tasks. That's similar to data we just saw out of California a couple of weeks ago before the fires where 44% of people actually would be classified as having clinical levels of anxiety or depression. That's, again, nearly half. That was pre-fires. So the humans are not doing so well. So how we manage their performance in this time really needs to be thought through carefully. And that's what we're going to do today. What's the right thing to do during this kind of crazy time? The architecture we're going to use, we're going to walk you through six conversations. And this is a framework we launched about five years ago now to just kind of help organizations think about performance management more deliberately. We realized that it's any kind of performance cycle is made up of six actual conversations. And each of these conversations have an intention and a frequency and an architecture and a goal. And often these things are very unstated. You know, companies have unclear, unstated intentions with each of these conversations. So we find it's really helpful to actually pull these six apart, think about them individually, follow the science of each one individually, because there is a good science for each of these, and then design just the right architecture. So we do a lot of consulting in that space and thinking about that. But what we want to do today is kind of pull these apart, and I'll hand to Rob in a moment to kick us off, but we want to pull these apart literally one at a time and share what we think should be happening and hear from you guys what you are doing with each of these as well. So it should be a lot of shared learning going on. So Rob, over to you. You want to take us through what's happening with goal setting? Thanks, David. A recent poll that NLI did on goal setting with 225 participants showed that 65% of organizations are adjusting their goal setting process. So something's happening out there 
in organizations due to the pandemic. It's changing the way organizations are thinking about goal setting. Interesting that only 16% are adjusting their annual reviews. So a big difference. So there's, there's some energy around goal setting that's happening. There's another study out there as well that NLI did, and they found that 60% of employees have a clear understanding of how they can help support their organizations in this time of crisis. And although that's the good news, the, the disappointing news there is that 40% don't know how to help their organizations. And that's partially what goal setting is all about, is helping employees understand where they are and where they need to go. So in this sort of deeply disrupted world that we're in, with everything that's happening, with these statistics in mind, success can come when you review shorter-term goals more often and focus on what's really important. I would guess for most organizations, the goals, the annual goals that each of you set as we turn the corner into this new year are no longer relevant. So much has happened. So much has happened in the world that has changed what we need to focus on. And because of the volatility that's out there, we need to focus on shorter term goals. The cliff note here is much more frequent goal setting and much shorter term, maybe being serious about just monthly goals and letting the quarterly ones slide, maybe be serious about letting the annuals slide. There's all sorts of ways to think about this at the moment. Is there any sort of big trend you're seeing out there, Rob? I think there's some confusion about what to do. I think people are thinking to make changes, but if I'm putting myself back in the practitioner world where I was before, in retail in particular, we were dealing with so much change. Like Every day was a different situation. And just when we thought things were getting better, other things came down the pike to make us have to change our strategy. So right. to ask people to think about longer term goals was ridiculous. So much right. easier to just focus on what's happening right now. And I have to believe right. that's happening in many companies. Because everyone's so sensitive to VUCA and to the changes, it's like one more change could tip the brain over. So, so a lot of firms are also saying, well, we're just going to leave it. Maybe we won't put as much focus on it. And I can see the, the sensibility of that. Someone used the phrase continuous performance management. And that is what you know, we've been trying to help the market shift to for the last decade. This is a great opportunity to shift to continuous performance management. But I think that's a great segue actually to Barbara's piece next, because you can't have continuous anything without lots and lots of high quality feedback. Let's talk about that. So essentially, isn't the real question whether or not we should be talking about giving unsolicited constructive feedback? Because let's face it, if we're talking about reinforcing feedback, that doesn't really cause threat or elevate threat in folks. It's when we're talking about unsolicited feedback. And that's really what we saw for our organization when we conducted research on this. So conventional wisdom says you put a lot of the emphasis on the giver providing the feedback, whereas really from a science perspective, it's more about the asking. And so, David, I know that you were directly involved in this study when we led it. So I'm going to invite you to say a few more things about it. This is, I'm going to do a very crisp summary of this. I know we'll have an event coming up in the next few weeks on this, but yeah. uh, we were asked by some large organizations to basically crack the code on building a feedback culture. What do you do differently to actually make feedback really take off in a company? And what we discovered is that the whole structure around giving feedback creates so much stress for giver and receiver. But when you shift to an asking for feedback model, it's significantly less stressful for both sides. Roughly half as stressful from some bio data we collected. If you're already at a high baseline of stress, then creating a culture of asking for feedback 
is going to be much, much better than trying to give. So it's sort of even more relevant now that the culture really emphasizes asking for feedback. And the second thing is when you're asking, you can get it much more frequently. It's a really, really important time to be taking on this idea. Do you want to share some of the data that we collected in the last couple of years on this too? Yeah, David. Actually, most recently in our latest study, we surveyed roughly 450 individuals and asked them about the frequency of which they were having feedback conversations. And so you can see this real clear disconnect, right? And this was in pre-pandemic times of folks feeling as though they weren't getting nearly as enough feedback as they felt was needed in order for them to perform effectively in their roles. And so in a deeply disrupted world, like we're talking about, and I also see these comments being made in the chat, which I love, just anchoring more heavily on asking really lowers the threat Mm. for both parties and people can get the information that they need. I know we did this last year. Barbara, do you remember the end? For some reason, we left it off. Do you remember how many people were? Yeah, I want to say, David, the end was something like 468. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely north of 400. Yeah, <laughs> That's north of 400. Researcher speaking. I think I, roughly 460. That's great. I'll start tackling some of the questions here. So in that 468 number that David is razzing me about, because I should know it exactly. No, no, so, you do know it exactly. That's what <laughs> We made the choice to actually survey everybody, because we wanted to include in that survey individual contributors. So we surveyed all employees to really speak from their vantage point as employees. That's who's in that number. So it wasn't strictly managers. It wasn't strictly talent leaders. And yes, it was absolutely different industries. Right. Many industries, and it was both uh, employees and managers. It was a large study because we, we specifically actually asked different questions of employees and different questions of managers to see the difference. And I think this study, we've got some other data from that study. It was a big study last year. Yeah. Who owns the asking? Because as we talk from a science perspective, as David has shared from that actual study, when you anchor on the asking, then it lowers the threat for both parties involved. What asking also does, rather than when you anchor on the giving, it puts more of the responsibility on the manager to be the one driving it. When you put it on anchoring, it opens it up. It empowers everyone. So really, it gives the opportunity to an individual to ask for feedback specifically, more broadly, and as often as they feel is necessary. We published two research papers on this that are really significant. If you're already a corporate member, you'll be able to access those and also watch a wonderful session we did with Bob Keegan a few years back, kind of bringing this alive. A couple of years ago, we published a big piece on feedback in strategy and business that goes into feedback and kind of summarizes all our research in this. But essentially, if you can get everyone in the habit, especially managers of asking for feedback, you suddenly get a huge burst in feedback that actually happens. What's your feeling about offering unsolicited constructive feedback during this time. So is that something we should be doing, giving the crisis times that we've been experiencing? Interesting data. So lots of people encouraging more frequent feedback. But the second study we did was actually collecting real bio data on feedback itself. All right, let's go on. We've got lots more to cover. So let's talk about check-ins. Yeah, definitely. The check-in conversation is our research around from a 
our conventional wisdom standpoint, the check-in has really been more about the work, what the tasks are, what the process is, focusing on how people are doing in terms of the work. Whereas from a science perspective, not to say that the focus on the results and outcomes, it's not as though that should go away, but expanding the focus and putting far more emphasis on the growth and the learning. That's what we see from a a research and science perspective. So for talent leaders that David, Rob, and myself that we speak with on a regular basis, that's what they've been sharing with us, that they have seen more of folks just checking in for the sake of seeing how they're doing, really dialing into that human aspect or element. Uh, So I want to know if that's been your experience inside of your organizations or if it's been something different. Relatedness helps mitigate anxiety. It's actually a whole lot of bio bio and neuro studies on this. If you're you know, with a team of people and you're having to take pain, like putting your hand in, in ice, you can literally hold your hand in longer if you're with people and you feel like people have your back. So it's not just a metaphor that you can kind of survive pain better if you're with a team or people who care about each other. But overall, people who felt that they were part of a team had much lower anxiety uh, about that. So I think you, it's so important, as many of you are doing, three quarters, to check in on the human in a deeply disrupted world. Really care about people. It's such a critical thing going forward. I saw a data point from Just Capital that 89% of Americans think that this is a time for organizations to really pivot, to really change fundamentally you know, how they think. And I think this putting humans first is such an important movement that's starting and hopefully will continue for decades. Folks are saying far more emphasis on the well-being aspect, less about the performance, and someone else meant to be like feedback. Rob, any other comments you want to add? The thing that I love is that people are doing more of them. I think that's a good recommendation regardless of whether we're in a COVID environment or not. This trend that's been going on for the last 10 years or so to move toward continuous feedback and talking more often certainly extends to the check-in. People should be doing them whenever they need, not just right. because it's put on a calendar at some point. It's kind of like because we're more separated, we need to be more connected. And because we're feeling you know, more distant, we need to be more human and more real with each other to balance those things out. It's really important. I'll give you three questions. This is what we use at NLI, super easy, super powerful. When we have our leadership stand up every week, how are you really? And people can't not answer it. They have to answer it. You know, How are you really? How have you been winning? What do you need help with? That's it. How are you? Have you been winning? What do you need help with? Now, you can't do that with 20 people, but you can do it in a stand-up with, you know, three, five, six, seven, eight people. Super helpful as a format, just three questions for kind of an ongoing check-in. More of a stand-up than a check-in, but still super helpful for a check-in because you're focusing on growth and learning and the positive and, you know, how you can help as well. Rob, take us through end of cycle. What are your insights and thoughts on this? Yeah, so our fourth conversation is end of cycle. And what we mean by that is, kind of reviews that happen anytime during the year. It doesn't have to be just the year end. It could be quarterly. It could be even more frequent than that. And whether these are documented or not is irrelevant here. The conventional wisdom says to focus on outcomes. And I bet if you talk to any C-suite, they would say, yep, that's what we want people focused on. Did people achieve their goals or not? But what science tells us is slightly different. It says that we should, yeah, be focusing on outcomes. That's certainly important. But you also want to focus on what people are learning, what insights they're finding in the work that they're doing, either in their successes or their failures, and how they're applying that insight both to their future work and maybe to other people's work in the organization. Think growth mindset, if you're familiar with that concept. So it's a little bit different. It's a little more holistic a discussion, not just outcomes. 
So in this incredibly disruptive world that we're in, you want to lift up from all the problems and the drama that are around us. There's so much going on and really focus on the process that the employee is working through and the actions they're taking to achieve their goals. I love to think of this as an opportunity to be inspirational too, to talk about the vision of the work, the purpose of the work, and then what did the employee actually do to get there? And as we mentioned earlier in the goal setting discussion, you want to be ruthlessly focused in this case on what's important, not talking about every single thing that's out there. So let's take a moment on that. Let's dig in. Again, think of the end of cycle. It could be the end of a month where you completed a goal. It could be the end of a project, or it could be the end of a quarter or the end of a year. How do you kind of focus on wrapping things up? You know, when you add key learnings, what happens versus just focusing on outcomes? I know from my own experience that when someone tells me about what I did in the past, and in particular, if they focus on the things that didn't go so well, that's not very inspirational for me. It doesn't help me to feel good about the work that I did, nor give me guidance on what I should do differently. When someone instead focuses on, well, what did you learn? What worked and what didn't? And how can you apply that to the learning? And it gives me the autonomy to make a choice about what I want to do next. I'm engaged, I'm motivated, I'm more inclined to walk away from that conversation feeling like it was productive and helpful to me. From a science perspective, what we're doing is activating a growth mindset. I mean, as soon as you say, tell me what you delivered, you're activating people trying to prove their value, right? And they won't really tell you about what they learned or how they could get better. They're going to try and prove that they delivered something. They're going to try to look good, right? So if you say, tell me, you know, did you deliver on this goal of 25 widgets? Okay, I'm going to tell you all about how I did that. I want to prove that I performed well, right? But what happens is when you focus on prove, you nudge out, improve. They don't want to tell you anything about how they might get better in the future because that's like not going to help with proving, right? Whereas when you say, hey, you know, how did you do? But tell me what you learned in this month that helped you get there. Like what new habits did you build that helped you win? And maybe what new habits do you think you need to build going forward? Now you're anchoring people on improve, not on prove. And you're anchoring not on looking good, but on getting better. The prove and look good, right? Versus improve and get better. And as soon as you're nudging people in any way towards improve and get better, you're activating more of a growth mindset. And we've got tons of research on that. Maybe my team can find a couple of the pieces we've written on growth mindset in performance management. We've probably got a dozen or so. David, I was going to mention one Andrea and I did transforming performance with a growth mindset. And it's exactly speaking to what you're mentioning. And so for those individuals who operated with a growth mindset, they were far more receptive to receiving the feedback, as well as very much willing to actually learn. And when they were given feedback about end of cycle work, when they had a growth mindset, they viewed it as an opportunity, as opposed to thinking of it as in some way that they failed. It's just literally focusing people on, on getting better as opposed to proving. You know, it's really, really important. If you're enjoying this podcast, you're going to love NLI's annual conference, the Neuroleadership Summit. This year, the all-virtual summit centers around building a better normal and will offer three days of impactful sessions focused on your most pressing issues. How to remain resilient, how to thrive through crises, allyship, equity, equality, and fairness, and continually learning while in a work-from-home world. Join us online November 10th through 12th and attend sessions available across the globe. 
You can watch sessions live on your desktop or access content on the go. We promise you won't want to miss it. To register and learn more, visit summit.neuroleadership.com. To save on a three-day non-member pass, use the promo code PODSUMMIT2020. That's PODSUMMIT2020. We look forward to seeing you there. We've written a lot on this. We've written a foundational research paper on organizational growth mindset. We wrote a piece literally on growth mindset as it relates to performance management. We've done about three big industry research studies on performance management separately, three or four on growth mindset. If you're a corporate member, you'll find just tons and tons of resources, all these papers and videos and lots of others in these performance management space. So it's a really big piece of it. But I think fundamentally shifting to a growth mindset literally makes people work harder. They learn faster. They're more adaptive. They handle stress better. So there's lots of good evidence on that, that just that shift really makes a big, big difference. We are offering the coaching certificate. In fact, we've gone 100% virtual months back. There's roughly one a month starting. That's incredibly popular. We used to run brain-based coaching years ago, maybe 10 years ago. We used to run it fully online and we stopped, but we had all the processes. So we went back to fully virtual and it's been incredibly popular. So you can run, a, there are programs pretty much in every time zone around the world, roughly once a month, you can start those. So those are available. I want to toss one to Rob, Rob, because there's this question of feedback conversations. Are they compromised at all when we have them virtually? I think that depends on how comfortable you are with this technology and the sort of sterile feeling that you get when you're only looking at a, a screen. I think anyone can learn to have a conversation this way. In fact, I find this to be a slightly more intimate setting. I pay more attention because I've got someone's face like right in front of me. And that makes it harder for me to get distracted. I'm like, I'm right there, especially if I turn off all the other technology that's around me. So I actually think that it can produce better conversations because it feels much more intimate to me than coming into someone's office where there's other distractions, where other people could come in the room. It's really just about me in that moment. I'm kind of geeking out on it personally. And we're also beaming straight into people's home office, right? Or home, seeing their families and their dogs and their kids and their pets, you know, all this stuff. It's a weird time. They're all just more disconnected, but actually much more intimate in many ways, much more real and connected with people. So I think it's a time you can have much more honest, real conversations, human to human. But just one thing, and I like Rob's comment there, you've just got to sort of get used to the tech, you know, make sure you can see, they, they can see you clearly got good lighting, good sound, just, you know, get comfortable with whatever platform you're using. So you're not using a big chunk of working memory on how do I see people? Where does it work? Just try to make more sort of intuitive and automatic the actual tech side of it so that you can focus on the human to human contact. Making sure everybody's on camera or facilitating that human connectedness. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting one, you know, managing performance virtually. I mean, the big thing here with managing performance virtually is in the absence of social cues, Generally, in any situation, the absence of social cues makes people assume the worst. So if you don't know someone's face, are they smiling, are they growling, like how are they feeling? When someone gives you a message, you literally automatically assume that they're angry at you. The brain just does that as a kind of default. And right now, everyone's craving social cues. Right? The smart manager is going to get on camera with their team member every week and just say hello and wave and say, how are you? And you're doing great. I'm here for you. Everything's great. And like that's managing performance 101, 
like just giving people social cues, encouragement. We need lots of positive feedback, all of that. So it's not so much managing performance in, in, during COVID. It's kind of nurturing and encouraging and supporting people is the way managers should think about performance right now. And yes, you can hear social cues in people's voice. You can hear warmth. You can hear authentic caring, especially if you know someone well and you know their voice. You can hear the person's really caring just in a phone conversation as well. So right now, I think it's not just a virtual world. It's a world where people are you know, anxious and on edge and starving for social cues. So in that world, the tip is get on camera regularly, express real empathy, and do everything you can to connect human to human, even if you want to keep that really separate. Let's get to the next one on compensation. So Rob, I think you're taking this? Yeah, this one's mine. So of all the topics that surround performance management, I think compensation is probably the one that's either most difficult or ruffles the most feathers. In the conversations that I've had with many companies over the last few years, every time I talk about innovations in performance management, this is the place where there's the most energy, the most angst, the most questions. And there were a couple of questions earlier in the chat about, so what do you do at the end of the year? How do you manage this process of providing compensation or reward given everything that's going on in the world? So conventional wisdom would tell that managers should just basically say, this is what you're getting. This is your merit, this is your bonus, and you're done. Science, on the other hand, adds a lot more to this conversation. And I certainly, in my own experience at Gap and what we designed there, said this is absolutely the way to go. You want to help employees understand the process. In fact, help HR understand the process for how merit and bonus are funded and how they're allocated, because most people don't know. And when you don't know how it's done, it feels unfair if you don't get what you are expecting. You want to include in that conversation more than just the details of the package, but recognize the things that the employee did well, where they're learning, where they're growing, what their next opportunities or challenges might be. And then, of course, give them the actual reward. But like we were saying earlier about talking about the future, about where you can grow, engage, draw the discussion toward what happens tomorrow or the next month or the next year so the employee has the motivation to move forward instead of only looking in the rearview mirror. I'll add one more interesting piece of science on here. There was a Harvard Business Review article that talked about whether employees liked being compared to other employees in terms of compensation. So think ratings. Did I get the A or the B versus the C compared to what someone else got? Or whether I liked being compared just to my own performance and not a surprise, employees would much prefer to be compared just to their own performance before. So again, think growth mindset here. It's about me getting better, not about me comparing my performance to someone else. What changes are going on in your organization right now with regards to year-end rewards? Are no changes being made? They're exactly the same as before. Are you going to spread reward evenly across all employees, taking the differentiation out? Are you only rewarding top employees, maybe because business has been tough and there's not a lot of money to go around? Are you shifting the focus from individual to team performance? Certainly in this year, more than any, it sort of takes a village. Are you making no changes to the annual process? I'm seeing, for the most part, no changes being made, which is interesting because the world is so different in 2020 than it's ever been before. I think there are a couple of things you can do. David pointed to an article that I wrote. I spent a lot of time talking about what's going on with rewards and what's going on in particular in this year because it's just not the same thing we're used to. One interesting thing that I'm seeing in companies, and in particular in the company that I used to work for, The Gap, is incredible innovation, which was sort of surprising to me with all the threats that are out there. You would think that innovation wouldn't be happening. 
But we saw incredible innovation in our product manufacturing. So when the designer and the merchant and the inventory management and production people would come together, there was this magic moment where they were all in a room looking at a sample on a human being, like looking how it draped, looking at the colors, pulling the waistline in to make it a little bit different, adjusting the lengths of the sleeves or the pant leg. It was a human process that was all happening in a room together. And then COVID hits. And we have to figure out a way to change this process to make it virtual. Now, if you would ask anyone in my company in 2019, could we ever do something like that? Would we ever consider doing anything like that? They would have absolutely said no. They would have said, you're crazy. You can't do that. And yet in this year, because of what's happening, all these sacred cows, all these old problems and new problems that are coming up because we're working remotely had to be solved. So teams are being incredibly innovative this year from my perspective. And I really think we need to reward that. So for those of you who are trying to figure out, well, where should we focus our particular bonus to, I think you reward teams and in particular teams that have been incredibly innovative in this year. Now, I'll, That's a good I'll, point. The research supports that. Yeah. Te- te- rewarding teams is really important because it creates team, you know, it creates a commitment to teams as well. It's really big. Yeah. I've written on that. I'll add one more point here because so many people are working remotely because we're not in an office and working remotely means you're dealing with the other things that are going on in your environment. So that could mean children who are homeschooling and having to figure out the technology and keep them tucked in or a spouse who's also working side by side with you. So who can talk quietly so that the other person can get their work done or do you have to go in separate rooms? We're managing so many things, not to mention our concerns about the health of everybody in our home. It's no longer an even playing field. If you got the A, the B, the C, then you get the pass. And if you're failing and you're going to be on corrective action anyway, you get the fail. So one of the things we're hearing, which is a really important point in this topic around compensation, is separating the performance conversation from the rewards conversation. And so we talk about that from an NLI perspective, our point of view, because when you factor in cognition, so from a brain capacity standpoint, we create cognitive overload for folks when we try to have that year-end discussion that really encompasses everything because we essentially are giving a review of how the person performed throughout the cycle. We are providing them with feedback. Then we're asking them to lift up and control and think more visionary about what they see their future being inside of the organization. And we also talk to them about their pay. And we probably lost them after the feedback, right? Because of threats. (laughs) So, you know, so just from a cognition standpoint, it's too much. And so that's why our point of view, and some of you are, are raising this in the chat, is really separate the two. It absolutely helps the experience from a threat level perspective so that the individual has the ability to manage that threat level and stay with you, right? Stay with that leader in the conversation and be focused really on just the performance part of the conversation and then subsequently at a later time have that rewards discussion. And and Robert, you see any data or Barbara, you see any data on how far apart these should be? I know we saw some data a few years ago. I haven't seen anything for a couple of years, but how far apart do you think these need to be? I can't speak to any data, but I'll say that I think what's What makes these conversations so difficult, so I think it's less about the timing, although it it is great to separate them. What's making these conversations so difficult is that many employees go into that year-end conversation not knowing what's going to happen. 
It would be beautiful if every employee walked in already knowing about their performance, what they're doing well, where they're getting stuck, what they should be working on, had a general sense of whether they were successful, like have they achieved their goals? So they walk into that conversation thinking, this is probably what I'm going to get, whether it's a rating or just the conversation and the compensation that goes along with it. When you walk into that conversation, it's not as threatening and you can hear more. But what's happening is they're not getting that all year long. So I think the conversations that happen before that are important. I can't speak to their cadence, just that they have to happen in order to make that year-end conversation easier and even shorter. Right. The comp should be relatively quick. How far apart? I was hearing a month apart, at least previously. Do we have any sort of sense of how far apart the performance versus... Yeah, David, I haven't seen anything published lately about it, but that's what we were seeing before, roughly a month, no longer than six weeks in terms of the distance between the two. Right. So for us at Gap, it depended on where you worked in the organization. If you were in headquarters locations, we said a month and that made sense for office workers. But in our stores, you can't wait that long to have conversations about performance with people on the sales floor. And you don't have the luxury of pulling them off the floor for an hour once a month. So we tried to create an environment where we were giving this kind of feedback all the time. So I think it depends on the work environment. In this year where there isn't parity with people working from home, where some people are dealing with parents, with children, with spouses, and all of the chaos and all of the fear of potentially getting sick, it's just not a level playing field. So I recommend that the people who are looking at compensation look at pass fail, not did I get the A, the B, or the C grade. If you were going to get the A, the B, or the C, then that's a pass. And if you were headed for corrective action, if you were going to get the F or the failing grade, you fail. And then everyone feels good. And, and it takes some of that differentiation between what's going on in your home life out of the equation. Right. And that's like the, the two, three or 4% fail we're talking about, like the serious underperformance, right? So with people who should be on a performance improvement plan. So we're talking about the few percentage of people that maybe is a fail. Otherwise, you know, this is a year to give people a pass. You have people operating at 150% capacity because they're not traveling. And, and then you have people at 50% capacity or 10% capacity because they're super, you know, struggling. And I think there's no way to really work around that except get the effective people to help the people who are challenged by, you know, lack of home care or whatever, sort of create these internal markets of sort of supporting each other is fantastic. It's intrinsically rewarding to help people, but otherwise there's not much you can do. I have one quick thing I want to say before we leave compensation. Since we're talking about separating these conversations, when it comes to communicating the reward, can we just send a letter or just have it show up in their paycheck? And what we would say to that is, while we're suggesting clearly to separate the two based on cognitive capacity like we've spoken of, and that the conversation should be a lot shorter... When we reduce it to an email, then it becomes transactional. So we don't want to lose the human element because there's the communication of the reward, but then there's another piece that's tied to it around procedural justice. And so if people really want to understand philosophically something about the pay process, the pay system, you want to allow the space for that to happen. And that wouldn't take place in an email. So we would still say, have that conversation because it needs to happen for that human element. Yeah, this is not a time to take out the human. <laughs> this is a time to add <laughs> the human in. Absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of which, let's think bigger picture long term. So what have you done to encourage career conversations? Have you not at all, quite a bit, somewhat, not sure, where are you on career conversations, the bigger conversations? And then the bigger picture question, will you be continuing to work on succession planning and talent planning this year? I think people don't want to feel like that is gone. That's really important. 
So Korea, take us away. Yeah. So really the quick and the dirty is we know from a conventional wisdom standpoint, it's about this once a year event versus research and science really tells us that this needs to feel more like a partnership where there's an opportunity to really provide coaching and guidance to an individual about where they want to go in terms of their professional development and that leader manager being that coach to really help them with that process. So it's conversations taking place. And when you look at the research that we did, pretty similar in terms of the trend that we saw with the feedback, what that 468 those individuals said to us specifically about career conversations is that they really were practically non-existent. So that's what we saw pre-pandemic. One of the questions we know that when it comes to these disruptive times, individuals will be reflecting on how was I treated by my employer? And when we're in this better normal and the economy is a lot stronger, is this a place I want to stick around and stay with? And when you look at career conversations from an employee standpoint, arguably, it's probably the most conversation for them because it's about an investment in them and how they're viewed and they're feeling valued as part of the organization. And so would love to hear from you all. You know, it it looks like many of you have said that inside of your organizations, you are having these career conversations. And so we'd love to hear from you about if they're not prioritized, particularly in these disruptive times, what are the implications? Because we're thinking if employees are feeling like, right, when when there's so much uncertainty in these times and they're not really sure, you know, given all the change that's happening inside of an organization, what does this mean for them? What does this mean for their future? So they really need to be having these conversations with their leaders. That's great. Just finally, a big thank you to Rob for your hard work behind the scenes and joining the team and Barbara, your incredible steerage of this practice and pulling this together, both of you, the last few weeks. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Welcome to the team. Everyone out there, the cliff note, care about the humans, follow the science. That's what it is, I think, on performance. Thanks very much, everyone. Take care of yourselves. Look after each other. Keep delivering what matters. We'll see you next week. Your Brain at Work is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us in making organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Danielle Kirschenblatt, and Cliff David is our production manager. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky, and logo design is by Catchware. We'll see you next time.